Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in the third year of the triennial reading. We were in the second year last year, obviously. So we are beginning the Torah again. So we begin at the third third of every portion in order to stay with the rest of the Jewish world in the same portion, but not pretending that we're going to get even close to through a whole Parsha at any given week, which means we do a third of them, a third of each Parsha. So we're in the third, third of each Parsha, the third year of the triennial cycle, which means we start at chapter 11 of the book of Genesis. So if you're looking at a book in front of you and you want to make notes in it, we are at chapter 11, verse 1 of Genesis. We just came through the the descendants of Noah, and we say that there, there are settlements extended from Mesha as far as Safar, the hill country to the east. So the descendants of of uh what's his name? Of Noah have been traveling and spreading out. That's what they're supposed to do. What does God say? Like, you know, scatter and fill the earth. That's the first commandment to human beings. Scatter, yeah, not scatter, fill the earth. And right. And so that means you have to have the earth filled with people means everywhere on the earth. That's, that's the divine blessing. Pru or vu, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the land, fill the world. So that's the blessing that God gives to humanity. And so that's kind of what's going on. Right. Um, and they, they are different nations. And from these nations, they branched out over the earth after the flood. That is what is supposed to happen. It is the second, I almost said the second coming. It is the second landing, right? It's the second beginning of humanity. And so you're supposed to do this, branch out and, um, and fill the earth after the flood. Okay, everything seems to be going along just fine until chapter 11. Now, there's lots of ways to translate this. Rashi translates it four different ways about what it could mean. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. It looks obvious, but it's not. There's lots of ways to go after what this is actually trying to say, other than the obvious that all of the earth, all the world had safa echat, one language. Now, some people want to say that this translates as the same words. That is not necessarily the case. Um, but we're not, like I said, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. Um, but let's, so let's just say it's something about, because some people want to say echad here means unique, right? Like that unique words, words we don't know anymore. We, we don't know. But we're not going to spend a lot of time there. So, but but we know everyone there in the world in the arts there was one safa, there was one language, and it was as they migrated from the east, they came upon a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. So they come to a, a flat plain, an alluvial plain, and they vayeshvusham and they settled sham there. Remember those two syllables, shin and mem. 
What was Noah's son? Do you remember his name? One of his sons? His name was Shame. I can't find it. Right? Shame, Ham, and Yafet. These are the three sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Yafet. So we've been talking about their descendants, the descendants of Shem, and Vayeshvu Sham. And they settled Sham there. Shinar seems to be a, uh, a Hebraicized form of uh, Babylon. So we're talking about they settled in Babylon. And each person said to his neighbor, Hava, which means get ready to do something. Hava nilbna levenim v'nisrefa lisrefa. The reason I read it in Hebrew is because all of this is about wordplay. All of it. Even if you don't know Hebrew, you can look here and see Lamed Bet Nun, Lamed Bet Nun, Sin Resh Fe, Sin Resh Fe, right? So, and Halvena Aven, they sound similar. Chemar and Chomer sound similar. All of this is about play on words. And of course, why do we need to play on words? What is this whole story about? Many of you know, right? This is about language, um, as we are about to see. So it is no wonder that this is all alliteration here, number one. Number two, it seems a little out of order. They said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them hard. Why? Why are you just going to make bricks, right? Well, that doesn't seem to be the place you would start the story. Where should you start the story? Here. And they said, come let us build a city and a tower with its top in the sky to make a name for ourselves, else we shall be scattered all over the world. All right. That should be the first sentence. Why does brick making come first? We'll talk about that. So what's going on here? They settle in Shinar, in this plain, and they say, we want to make a city and a migdal, a tower, v'roshovashamayim. So Sham, they settled Sham. And here we get the crowning achievement is going to be that the Migdal, the tower has its head, Bishamayim, in the heavens. V'na'aselanu shame, that we may make for ourselves a shame, a name, lest we be scattered all over the world. Okay? So already Sham, Shamayim, shame. All of this is language. All of this is a play on words. Words that sound different, but made up of the same letters mean different things. I read an article, which is why I'm going to hammer this, because you know me. (laughs) I'm going to hammer what I want y'all to to consider the story from, which I've always incorporated a little bit of this, but this year, like this article I read really lifted up this idea that it's not just clever on behalf of the author, that these words 
the biblical author, that these words play on each other. This article suggests, uh, and the article is called Language is Baffling, the Story of the Tower of Babel. This author suggests that, that the play on words that's going on here is the point of the story. That's the whole point, that the story is about the fact that signifiers can sound the same and look the same, but mean different things. And a word that sounds exactly like the word in another language does not mean the same thing in the other language. And that's the kind of the point of the story so that this is not just, oh, isn't that nice? There's a play on words and we're talking about language. It's that that is the point of the story is that language, it's not real in a way. And yet, if you want to get at reality, you need to use more than one language because each language has its own way of talking about reality. So just kind of hold that in your head. I know that was a lot, but just hold that in your head as we read the rest of this. All right. So otherwise we'll be scattered over all the world. This is a problem. This is a big problem. Else, lest, pen, lest we be scattered all over the world. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what God said. Fill the earth. So lest we be scattered is already saying we are not going to do what God said. Already. Already, we have how many generations descended from Noah, the second beginning, Noah, the second Adam, and what's happening already is that they're saying we're not interested in doing what God wants. So it's hard to, we don't get that, but this line should be like, ding, 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 ding. This is a huge problem. We just went through this. We just went through, if you're not going to behave the way God wants you to, what happens? But God's promised not to do that again. So now what? Well, we're going to see what. So they're going to build a tower with its head in the heavens. This comes directly out of Babylonian, Akkadian, Sumerian tradition. We've talked about this every time we study this text. The ziggurat, the temple that is supposed to rep- to look like a mountain, right? Um, the ziggurat is the, is the Mesopotamian expression of how humanity has contact with the divine. And that is you build a mountain, this, this, this huge structure with its head in the heavens, because that's where the gods are. And then the priests go up, those steps to the top of the ziggurat and presumably do their business with the gods. That's what this is talking about. So if you think that you are going to go up to where the gods are, and in our story to where God is, well, what does God do with that? God comes down. So y'all think you're going to build something that's going to take you to the house of, you know, to the realm of the divine? Well, guess what? Yudhe is not bound by any kind of place, God forbid. So God comes down. You're going to go up 
I'm coming down. You think you're coming up here to the master bedroom? Uh Uh-uh. I'm coming down. So God comes down. Elaine's laughing. So God comes down. To see what's going on. So God just does, doesn't make a decision from God's heaven. God comes down to actually confront what's happening and to see the Migdal, a share Banu Bneha Adam, that the, that the children, the descendants of the earthling built. And again, listen to the alliteration. Asher Banu Bneha Adam. You can't miss it. Vayomer Right, and so God says, "Hain am echad v'safa achat l'chulam." So, if there is one language, if there's one nation and one language for everybody, and this is how they behave, then nothing that they may propose to do will be out of their reach. What does that mean? Nothing they propose to do will be out of their reach if there's one people and one language. What's the central problem that Yudhe is identifying? If humanity can understand each other, humanity will be unstoppable in terms of doing things that God thinks are not appropriate for humanity to do. Think about that. I want you to think about that. Do we agree? Is that is that a central danger? And is the solution, if we don't understand each other, then maybe we won't be able to colossally screw up. Does God think people are a threat to God? Clearly, God doesn't like what they're doing. And God thinks they'll be able to do lots more of what of things that God doesn't like if they understand each other. Okay. So sit with that for a minute. Cause I'm going to take this somewhere. I read the article and started scribbling furiously in the margins because there's, it just left out at me all of a sudden. So I'm going to see if what y'all think about it. All right. We'll get, we're going to get there. Have on there. Let us then go down and confound their speech. All right. So already the construction of this Hebrew sentence is weird. Hava, again, preparation to do something. Nerda, obviously it's in the plural. That's a little odd. Let us descend. Let us go down. Vinavla sham sfatam. It should read vinavla sfatam sham. Let us confuse their language there. But it says vinavla sham sfatam. And let us confuse their, their language. So why does their get the preeminent positioning? Shouldn't it be about the language? Because the verb is related to language, not to location. So again, shame, sham, shamayim. Again, there's something wrong about this business of sham and shame. Their and name, this is a central part of the issue, not just the language. And I would suggest, I'm going to propose, it's not even so much the language. The language isn't the problem. The language issue is only an issue because it's allowing them to do something sham there about shame, about making a name, which we're going to see.
Okay. So then it might make sense that the, the order is reversed because the author is suggesting that, that the sham and the shame is the real issue, not safa. The language is just the vehicle by which they're doing what they're not supposed to do. Asher lo yishma'u, so that ish sfat re'ehu lo yishma'u, that they won't hear, literally they won't hear people, the language of their neighbor, meaning they won't understand the language of their neighbor. This is why when we say shma, it doesn't mean just listen, hear, O Israel, right? It doesn't mean that. It means understand, Israel. Shma means listen, hear, and understand. And the Lord scattered. So yud Buffet scattered them from over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. And therefore, because look at the verb we have, navla um, is, is the verb used for confuse. And here we have the, the it's called bavel, kisham balal yudhevavhe sfat kohaaretz, because there God balaled the language of the earth, umisham. Again, and from there, God scattered them all over the earth. And that's the end of our story. So it's called Babel, Babel, because God caused their language now to become Babel to each other, right? And then we get Ele Toldot Shame. Here are the generations of shame. So um, we're ma- the whole point of making the McDonald's making the tower is to make for themselves a shame, a name. But as we pointed out before, shame doesn't have to mean just name. When we talk about Yad Vashem, when we talk about the, the Holocaust you know, uh, Museum, Yad Vashem, a hand and a name. And we talked about a hand being an indicator and shame is a monument. Because in the ancient world, if you achieve for yourself a great enough name, by definition, you had a monument, right? You're Pharaoh, you have a great name. What does that mean you have? Huge pyramids, huge castles. I guess they weren't castles. But what, what do you call them? Palaces, right? Same with Mesopotamia, if you achieve a great shame as an emperor, then you have huge monuments that you leave behind. And there is even attested in Mesopotamia and in Akkadian, this idea that the monument, I have achieved such a shame that I have this great monument. And this monument preserves the shame, the name of my reign. So we think that's where monument comes from. We're pretty sure. Um, and so this may not mean make for ourselves a name. It may mean make for us a monument, right? That we have become so great that we have this huge monument that will last forever. Then we get the generations of shame, right? And and here we go with now this genealogy, which is the genealogy immediately following the story of the Tower of Babel and the Tower of Babel itself, the story, 
is kind of the the culmination, if you will, of the pre-Abraham world. Because what's going to happen here? What do we get? We get Terach at the end of this genealogy. Who is Terach? Right? We get Terach, the father of Avram. So we get the birth of Avram and Avram marrying Sarai at the end of this story, setting us up for Sarai being barren and having no child. Okay? So we are moving from the flood and from the pre patriarchal era, the pre-patriarchal era comes to an end with the Tower of Babel story. This is not just a story stuck here. This is the end of the pre-patriarchal history. Okay? And it the culmination of that history, the culminating event is the Tower of Babel. Why? What is the big deal? What is this actually trying to get at? What is this actually about? And why is this the, the culmination of the generations following the flood before we begin the story of Avram and Sarai? I want, you to, I want you to get some theories going in your head about why that might be, what's going on, um, why this is here, what, what is it telling us in terms of being placed here? Okay, so first I want to tell you that um, stepping back from the story itself, stepping into the purpose of the story, there are usually given about four explanations for what this story is coming to do. So many times in the Bible, we have etiological stories. What are those? Those are stories about how the elephant got its trunk, right? Why does the elephant have such a long, why does the giraffe have such a long neck? We get a lot of these stories um, in in the Bible, and many come from traditions uh, pre-biblical, so coming from neighboring right um, stories, uh, culture uh, coming from neighboring cultures, um, Akkadian, Sumerian, Ugarit, like all of these um, pre-Israelite cultures in the area in the neighborhood. Of course, the Israelites, because they develop in the region, are going to be based on those stories. Those are the stories there the generations before them grew up with. So those are the building blocks with which early Israel is going to reconstruct a new understanding. So what what is this story about? Generally, people say, critics say, literary critics, biblical criticism says it is about a critique in general of human hubris. God says scatter and fill the earth. What do people do? We like this valley and we're going to stay here. We're not going to do what God said. And they have one language and that enables them to take on this huge building project so they can build for themselves a shame. That's what becomes their goal is to build for themselves a shame with its and the ziggurat has its this this tower has its head in the heavens where you know, the gods are said to dwell. Maybe that's part of it, but whatever it is, God doesn't like it that they are, that they are doing this. So a a critique of human hubris in general, making for ourselves a name that that becomes the big deal is a problem. That's one explanation. Uh, Another one is that this is a critique of Babylonia. 
right? So if the ziggurat, Mesopotamia is famous for its ziggurat, and that's how it shows off how great it is and how powerful it is and how much it can construct things, then, then this is a critique of that because that's the problem. Building this thing is a problem. And, and it's confounding. Ultimately, it brings God down to confound human language and to prevent us from understanding each other. So it's definitely not a good thing. So possibly this is a critique of Babylonia and what its focus is on, right? Building these huge things, which clearly Israelites, the puny little punky little Israelites, that's what y'all are about, right? You know, it, it's like Duluth criticizing Las Vegas. So um, just saying, so um, look at how tacky they are. Look at what they're concerned with. It's so material. It's so, you know, okay, yeah, easy for you you're over there, punky little nobody who cares what you think. But, but that's often the little guy saying, oh, yeah, you know, you know, York, you think you're so great. Okay. Uh, number three, how the elephant got its trunk. How did we all descend from Noah? And yet, There are so many different languages, even known to the biblical author. How can there be so many languages if we all descended from Noah? We were all speaking the same language, obviously. How did all these different languages develop? Well, here's the story that talks about how that happened. Okay. The other one is an etiological story. Is more Skirch of JTS says this. My JPS commentary says this which is number four, it is, a, it is a story explaining how we became polytheists, idol worshipers from Noah, who was a monotheist. How do we get from Noah, who gets off the boat and sacrifices to Yudhei Noah has a relationship with Yudhei obviously, because Yudhei tells him to build a boat. Right. The rains are coming. Build a boat. Here's the exact instructions. So God picks Noah. Noah talks to God, follows God's, you know, demands and instructions and then becomes who we all descend from. So where did the idea of idol worship come in? Where how could that develop if we're all descended from Noah? And so this is a a story to kind of um, talk about. Um, about that says Scorch from the yes and says uh, the JPS Torah commentary. Okay. Like, in other words, you're starting to build, you're, you're starting to focus on things that used to represent the God, but now start to become the thing themselves. And right, this leads you into the, the idol that used to represent something now becomes the focus instead of just being a symbol, okay? Like they're actually going to climb this thing and actually go to heaven. That's the beginning of idolatry. Okay. <laughs> so, so here we are. Any comments so far? I can't believe this group. It doesn't have any comments. No hands are raised? Uh, I have I, I have a, a comment. It seems okay. to me we're, we're about to have the story of Avram and the creation of the Jewish people which is a separate people from other peoples. So in order to have that, you need to have separate peoples. So in in one way, maybe this is included in what you said, this is setting the stage for there being able to be a separate people, because otherwise everybody's one people. Take it one step further. 
A separate people who what? Are, quote, chosen. Ah, chosen for what? Uh, For service to God. Chosen to follow the rules that God gives them. Right. So this, yes, is setting the stage, say some scholars. This is setting the stage for a people who will be selected to receive a covenant. What is a covenant? A bunch of rules. Because these people do not follow rules. So we're going to set the stage with the birth of Avram and Sarai. We're setting the stage for the development of a family that becomes a people who will receive a bunch of rules and follow them. That's the next stage that yod heh wants is a people who will follow God's rules and instructions. That God picked the Jewish people has got to be the funniest thing ever because, yeah, pick Jews to follow. <laughs> really? Okay. Uh, Barry. Uh, so I wrote in the chat, uh, we have the, this, these, these two big empires, Egypt and Babylonia. And Egypt is being criticized for enslaving people. While it seems that Babylonia is criticized for cultural imperialism, of of erasing other cultures, perhaps, I don't know. And, And it's interesting, it seems that God sacrifices his own name and sets in motion the process of developing polytheism. So how smart was that? (laughs) <laughs> right so you know really, how'd that work out for you uh, and, and in the next chapter we have people you know abraham according to tradition uh you know d- developing this monotheism out of some kind of logic or or observance of observing nature that's midrash yeah that's all midrash because the midrash is curious about it but not that's not in torah Torah says, you know, God calls Avram, lech lecha, next week, right? God calls Avram next week, lech lecha, leave. And that begins the process of this relationship with the divine. But it's not, we're not told how or, or why Avram is not following the idolatry. We're not even told in Torah that Terach is an idolater, right? So anyway, um, that's all Midrash. Because the Midrash is curious, right? If Avram's the first monotheist, then the person before him wasn't a monotheist. The generations before him weren't. Then how and why would he deviate from being raised with a Christmas tree? Like, why would you stop doing Christmas? Like, that makes no sense. Okay. Dana? Um, I just, I guess I found it significant, even though you're talking about God choosing the Israelites as the chosen people, it, it's such an individual thing, even with Noah. Noah, I mean, maybe God was talking to everybody with Noah, uh, everyone during Noah's time, but Noah's the only one that took action. Avram, you know, uh, responded individually. So it just seems very significant that you're talking about large groups of people, the storyline controls the groups, you know, gets rid of the Tower of Babel, and yet individuals take action and, you know, see the light kind of. I, I think that's really a lesson 
in moving forward, that the story describes individuals who are, you know, Noah takes action and Abraham takes action. So what do you do with the fact that the story says God picks Noah and God picks Avram? Um, Well, there was still a choice. Even though God picks these people, the each of those Avram and Noah still have to make the action on their own. Noah has to build the ark himself. Avram has to get up and walk away. I just think there's God has control, but God isn't making everybody do it. Those individuals are acting. So, um, so what I hear you talking about. So what I hear you talking about is partnership. That that God right God says it's raining, it's coming, it's going to be bad, right? Our tendency as human beings is to go rain. What rain? I don't see any rain, <laughs> right? Like so, it's right. So Noah has to believe God that that it's coming and it's coming so much that you're going to need this huge thing that seems crazy to build, right? So so it's a partnership that Noah responds and Noah has trust, and then does what needs to be done. And that Avram leaves everything. God says, Lech Lecha, and Avram leaves everything familiar to him, right? So that it's, it takes a partnership between the divine calling and the human responding. Right. It's just that we're building a people. Which is going to be, and it's going to be the model of that people, that it is a covenantal partnership that God is going to call at Sinai and the people are going to say, okay, we'll do what you say. So I think it's exactly right, Dana, that these are the individual stories that, that precede and lay the foundation for a single people who will respond to the divine call and do what that takes. As you said, and, and will act. And the action is, Taking and is is making an agreement, which is entering into the covenant. And then what's the rest of the work of the Jewish people throughout history? What's our whole mission? To keep the covenant, to to behave in the ways that will ratify the covenant. That's our whole, that's our whole purpose for being is to continue to act in the ways that the covenant demands. Okay. Somebody else had their hand up but I don't know who. Oh, David and Jody. So David, then Jody. You know, Amy, I I mentioned last week, it always seems that God is disappointed in the product that he creates. And you said, I think, no, 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 because we're now, we've got a second chance with Noah. And now I'm seeing again, the same refrain, that no matter what we do, we're never doing enough. So what's the solution? Is is this the editor's choice to phrase? First of all, am I correct in that point of view? Yes. And if yes. it's so, did the did the writer yes. decide to write it that way? Yes. So what's the fix? That's why the writer writes it this way. What's the fix? Just try harder, I guess is what would be saying. Pick a people and give them a set of rules that they'll follow. And yet we don't. 
We're always uh, that, that's another story. That's not well, our but story. that story is throughout Deuteronomy. I mean, we're but always we a, disappointing God. Yes, but we get a second set of tablets, and that covenant is still in effect. Yes, I think God realizes that God, especially with the sin of the golden calf, that it's permanent. Humanity disappointing God, including the Jewish people, disappointing God is a permanent state of affairs. And God chooses to be in covenantal relationship with us anyway. Do, do, is it appropriate for some of our Kepi doctors to comment on whether or not people living in constant frustration because they're not good enough does have some deleterious effect? On wait, the wait, 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 wait. That's not the basis of the tradition. Well, I just said the opposite. <laughs> I just said the opposite. God learns that we are not going to fulfill the covenant all the time, even most of the time, and enters into the agreement anyway and gives us Yom Kippur in order to be forgiven. Uh, that we, uh, that God, God's the one who learns and changes, not humanity, right? God has to get it. Are you, after the golden calf, it could not be more clear that it, this is not going to happen. God had a choice. God says, Moshe, move out of the way. I'm done. I'm done. I'm destroying them. And Moshe says, no. If you destroy them, destroy me. (laughs) This this is as good as you're going to get. So I'm not starting over with another people. This is as good as it gets. So make a decision. And God makes a decision. If you were writing this, would you change that at all? Or would you, are you happy to embrace what's there? I would not change it because, frankly, I think this is a story of hope because this is a story that says you are fallible. I, God, get that. And I choose to be in relationship with you anyway. We are not a people who looks at Jesus Christ, perfection, and tries to be that. That would be depressing to me. If I had to try to be a disciple of Christ, I would disappoint myself so much every day that I would give up. And I'm not being smart here. I really would give up. So the answer then is we're imperfect, but as long as we strive to be better, that's both fulfilling and what God wants us to do. And and, and it shows that we should always be in conversation with each other discussing this kind of thing so that we know where each of us comes from. I'd still like to hear. And that we keep saying to each other, how can we be better? And we have to turn to each other to figure that out. And our texts and our tradition (laughs) and our teachers and our exemplars and our poets and our Kepi doctors and And other people. people, (laughs) And like Emma Linda said, the text says it's very good. It doesn't say perfect, right? Nowhere does it say perfect. Good is not perfect. Like I keep hearing, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. That seems, everybody seems to be saying that to me these days. I'm not sure why that is, but right. That um, the good, the very good, good is sometimes like where we can get and that perfect is just like, what, like really? Okay. Um, now Mark and Judith. Okay. So did Jody, Jody had her hand up too. Did she go away? Jody went away. Okay. Mark. And then me, please. What? Okay. Mark, we can't hear you. George, do you want to say something? And then Mark can unmute. All right, what do you want to say, George? 
I just want to say that God, in choosing Noah, does not choose a perfect man. Correct. <laughs> That's correct. Because yeah. And we see that pretty quickly after he gets off the boat, right? What's the first yeah. thing he does? He builds a vineyard and gets drunk and naked. <laughs> I didn't know, but it really is. So he chose a non-perfect man, and we are not perfect. That's right. And we should accept the fact that you are not perfect, but continue right. to strive towards perfection, though we know we will not reach it. Or I'm not tr- I'm not striving for perfection, people. I don't know who among y'all is. That's just crazy town, if you ask me. That's cuckoo pants. I'm striving to be better than I am now. That's it. I ain't got no delusions that I'm reaching for perfection, right? First of all, life would be so boring. How good do we have to be, right? Bert's holding up, right? So, like, we, I'm not looking for perfection. That's so dumb. Like, I'm looking to be better tomorrow than I am today. Or some days, I'm looking not to be worse, right? <laughs> do you ever feel like you're on a trajectory downwards? I'm not kidding. Like, when you're getting super burned out or crabby or exhausted or fed up with the situation, you just feel like, please don't let me lose it tomorrow. Please let me go in there and not lose my cool, right? Right? And so some days it's like, I just want to plateau, right? And stay right. here and not be worse, right? Anyway, and sorry. Is that because of guilt? Because you didn't attain perfection? No, if perfection's not the goal, I don't have to feel guilty about not achieving perfection. What? There's no guilt there. There's just, I want to be a better person. I think good people want to be better people, Right. And then we surround ourselves with people who we think will help us be better people, right? You know when you're around a bad influence. I know I do. Sometimes that is super fun, but that is not where you want to stay. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? All right, Mark, speak, please. You know, it, uh, it seems to me that one way of looking at this is to look at the unconscious meaning, uh, at least it seems so to me, of this, and it seems to me to be a story that um, gives specificity and meaning to uh, the uh, the whole issue of separation, uh, and that um, um, contrary to what might uh, seem to be naively the case, merger is the danger. Merger is psychological death, and separation. And the, and the bringing together uh, of good and bad permits relationship. Love that. Do you see why I'm offering this class? Because that's what I'm talking about. Merger is death. Individuation and like living truly into individuating is the task of a lifetime. Right. To be respectful of others individuating and what that means for them and to do mine with the most integrity and authenticity that I can, merger is the antithesis of individuation. And if you look at the whole creation story, you're exactly right, Mark. How does creation come into being from separation? How does, right, how does the universe become the universe? Separation from everything being God. And that is exactly, I think, one of the points of this is that we're supposed to be separate. And over that separateness 
we choose what we call relationship, including God. God has to choose to let humanity individuate and then choose a relationship with it. And that is very different from codependency, right? And as a lesbian, I know all about that, right? <laughs> right? About, you know, co-advil, you take it when your partner has a headache, right? Um, the insurance we buy is my fault, right? So anyway, that, right, because that, that is the death of what we're supposed to do, which is to figure out who we are and then be in respectful, mature, loving relationship with other people who are doing the same thing. And I believe you're exactly right that that's a point of the story. Judith? I think I've changed my mind about my question now. (laughs) But I was thinking, going back to the the language, I know that one of the reasons that Kashrut was established was because if you can't eat with people, you're not going to socialize with them. And if the language is so disparate among peoples, you can't really communicate with them. So having a single language is a unifier. Um, and I think that's that's still valid. Also, I was thinking about the prayer every morning, the Modani prayer that I say. Yeah. I end it every morning with, let me get today just a little better than yesterday. It's not let me get it perfectly. It's let me get it a little better. There you go. There you go. All right. You brought me to the point that I was scribbling furiously in the margin. So I want to at least just show you this one sentence. I swear, just be one sentence. This just leapt out at me, um, this sentence. Theologically, starting right here, theologically, the deity perceives that people can be controlled and kept in line only if they are safely divided from one another. And I highlighted that and started scribbling in the margins, Facebook, And I thought, who benefits today from that, right? Humanity can only be controlled and kept in line if they don't communicate, if they don't understand each other. And I was listening to all this testimony, right, on Capitol Hill about um, Facebook and about the logarithm, what do they call logarithms or logarithms, whatever it is. Algorithms. Thank you. Algorithms that... um, that keep us engaged by what? By making us pissed off at what the other person wrote. So it's feeding us. And then I thought about the Russian disinformation, you know, campaign during the elections. Their whole agenda was to pull us apart because only by doing that can they control what happens over here. Right. If we're unified, if we understand each other, if we hear each other, even if we see it differently, if we understand each other and can hear each other, there's no stopping us. And I thought, wow, here's the flip side of of a positive argument, which is if we could shut up and just try to understand each other, there would be no stopping us. So in whose interest, in our story, it's in God's interest, but that, that wasn't what leapt out at me. What leapt out at me is in whose interest is it right now to make sure we are controlled by being divided, by being unable to understand each other? Like, and that 
the, the fact that this story is so relevant to what's happening right now that is at the core of, I believe, the biggest danger to our democracy ever. I was like, are you kidding? Mic draw. Torah talks to us right now. It has been the same throughout human history. If they can't understand each other, if they can't hear each other, as our text said, lo yishma ishet re'ehu, if we can't hear our neighbor, we can be controlled. We can be stopped. And I don't know about you, but it made my blood run cold when I read that sentence, because that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what we're dealing with, is we're being controlled by people who want to make sure we don't understand each other. Let us work in whatever ways we must to frustrate that agenda, to frustrate that goal so that it should not come to be. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.